HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Whole Foods Market. For more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com. Eating Matters is produced by Heritage Radio Network, a nonprofit, member-supported radio station devoted to all things food. Help keep HRN alive by becoming a member today. Go to HeritageRadioNetwork.org and click on the beating heart to donate. Hi, and welcome to Eating Matters, where we talk about food policy and how it impacts all of us. I'm your host, Jenna Liute, and we're broadcasting live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, on Heritage Radio Network. For the past two centuries, milk has been touted as a perfect food, natural, pure, and nutritional. And today, fluid milk drinking is a core part of the American diet, especially among children. But was this always the case? When and why did fluid milk become so ubiquitous? To help us answer these questions in detail, author Melanie Dupuis is joining the show to discuss the religious, political, and sociological factors of the past two centuries that paved the way for fluid milk to become a major American food habit. Later on the show, we will be joined by Liz Vaknin and Shelley Golan, co-founders of Our Name is Farm, this week's feature star- featured startup. But before we get into our discussion on milk, uh, my associate producer, Taylor Lanzette, is with me today to go through some of the biggest food policy stories from the past week. Hi, Taylor. Hi, Jenna. How are you? Good. What, what's going on? Uh, so two weeks ago, we talked about the GMO labeling law that was being pushed through the Senate uh, as an attempt to stop Vermont's GMO law. Mm-hmm. And last Thursday, it passed in the Senate and got a primetime spot on the agenda in the House for yesterday afternoon. Um, and so, again, just as a reminder, the Roberts, then and now bill would preempt state GMO labeling laws and give the USDA two years to develop rules for how companies can label GMO ingredients, be it on the package, through a symbol, or through QR codes. Okay. Um, And so, Jenna, I think the key thing here is it still requires some identification or acknowledgement that GMOs are in the product. Right. But it just, this bill just gives companies the option to choose how that information is displayed, right? Using three different options. Correct. Which that seems, by the way, like it's going to be not streamlined, but whatever. Yeah. And I mean, again, with the QR codes, it puts it onto the consumer to sort of figure out what it actually is. To look up the information. Yeah. Right. 
Um, but so when it got to the House, the House Rules Committee passed a rule that barred amendments from being added during the considerations. Which essentially prevented it from becoming weaker and yeah. like voluntary, right? Which is incredible because didn't the House's original bill call for voluntary labeling? Only? Yeah, so last year the House's bill essentially was trying to push through it to, again, sort of preempt Vermont's mm-hmm. that everything would be voluntary. Right. Um but, you know, it's it's pretty funny because reading uh, what lawmakers were saying and ones who would have preferred having voluntary a voluntary bill are now just saying it's great because it's going to preempt Vermont's as if that's now the main goal. <laughs> so politics as usual. Of course. Yeah. OK, so now um, th- so th- then what happens? The House is going to vote on the consolidated bill. And then what? Yeah, so it's not clear when the official vote from the House will be. It could be today or any day soon. Um, But it's likely to pass. And then, as you know, Obama just needs to sign it into law. Okay, and we will be keeping you listeners um, abreast of the situation as it develops um, on our Twitter feed. So be sure to check it out. So another news update is last week, Congress passed the Global Food Security Act, which reaffirmed the U.S.'s commitment to ending global hunger, poverty, and child malnutrition. Um, and advocates estimate that the legislation will help over 800 chronically malnourished, including 500 million children. This was refreshing, I thought, looking at this um, come down, you know, come to fruition, because it seemed to be very bi- bipartisan, which is, yeah, you don't see that very often <laughs> coming out of our Congress. Um, and it's also important because it's part of the administration's Feed the Future program, which um, launched in 2010 to address global hunger and insecurity, which will continue. This bill essentially ensures that 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 work will continue beyond the Obama administration. Yes, exactly. Um, Clearly, Obama and Michelle just have a pretty, uh, they've been doing a lot of good food work. They do. They love their food work, and (laughs) and we love them for it. Um, Okay, uh, Danan, the French multinational corporation. uh, Nailed the pronunciation, by the way. Uh, based in Paris, just acquired White Wave Food Company for $10.4 billion. Um, That's a lot of money. Yes, and some of us probably know White Wave because it's the conglomerate that includes Silk, So Delicious, Horizon Organics, and Earthbound Farm Organics. Um, so this is, you know, this is interesting not so surprising because consumers, we have seen, um, you know, a bigger push for simple natural products and sales are growing really quickly in these in these sectors. Um, right. And the, the small companies are going to get acquired, you know, by the larger ones. And we saw this last year when Hormel Food Court bought Applegate Farms for $775 million. Mm-hmm. And also when General Mills bought Annie's. As we all know, Annie's mac and cheese for eight hundred and twenty million. Right. What's also um, fascinating to me about this is that we're seeing a, bit, a big dairy company really try to diversify mm. its portfolio um, to reflect demand, because as we know, White Wave specializes in plant-based foods. Right. And um, even though milk is still ubiquitous, which we're going to talk about today, um, consumption of fluid milk has actually has decreased since yeah. its since its height in the in the nineteen seventies. So an interesting shift in consumer behavior towards uh, these like plant-based milk products. Totally. Um, Another favorite drink for some. Uh, So Mm -hmm. by 2020, your favorite can of beer might include a nutritional label. Six brewers, including the three giants, um, 
Anheimer, Anheimer Bush, Anheuser, Anheuser Bush, <laughs> Heineken, and Miller Coors have voluntarily agreed to start posting nutritional info on all their containers for sale in the U.S. Um, this seems great. I'm all about you know transparency in in our food system, <laughs> but I feel like I learned all I needed to know with regard to the nutritional content of beer in college. Really? When I gained 15 pounds. <laughs> I felt like that was like information enough for me. Now is the time to give feedback. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Publicly comment. Comments? All right. Well, I will include that. Yeah. <laughs> to the USDA. They would know. definitely want to know that, I think. Yeah. All college-bound <laughs> students. <laughs> um, and last up, uh, we just can't get enough of snack. Um, this is really exciting because... Uh, anti-hunger advocates and lawmakers rallied to support the expansion of SNAP to uh, to be used to purchase online food. Um, and yesterday, Thrive Market um, sort of was leading this charge with these lawmakers, and Thrive has already gained uh, 40,000 signatures in the past two weeks, and Thrive Market is an L.A.-based online grocery store. And so they're partic- partic- they are petitioning the USDA to expand the use of benefits for their online Correct. For online sales, which yeah. is great. So it should be noted they're not they're not the first to do this. Fresh Direct, for instance, has had a pilot in existence in, in the Bronx um, that allows uh, SNAP recipients to to make purchases with their benefits online. But um, I think this is I think we're definitely in agreement that we're really excited about this um, yeah, gaining traction for sure. And Thrive also is going to um, because there is a membership fee mm-hmm. and to allow more low income individuals to participate. The membership fee of somebody who pays for the full cost membership actually subsidizes the membership of somebody who would be potentially using SNAP. They're great. I want to have them. Um, I want to. They they are invited to come on awesome. the show as a featured startup, and I would love to talk to them more about this because it is really yeah. really exciting. Okay, that wraps it up for our new segment today. Um, thank you, Taylor, and be sure to tweet or direct message us at Eat Matters HRN if you want to include a particular update or if you have thoughts on the ones we discussed today. Today's program is proudly brought to you by Whole Foods Market, America's healthiest grocery store with more than 400 locations throughout the United States. Download the Whole Foods Market app on your smartphone for recipes, sales, information, and digital coupons. Or visit WholeFoodsMarket.com to find a store closest to you. Okay, turning to the topic at hand. Today we are going to be speaking with Melanie Dupuis, author of Nature's Perfect Food, How Milk Became America's Drink. Melanie is the Chair of Environmental Studies and Science at Pace University and is also Professor Emeritus at the University of California, Santa Cruz. Melanie, welcome to the show. Thank you. Um, so we're really excited to talk about this topic with you today. Um, Taylor, you are... What, I'm a big fan. You're a big fan, <laughs> a big fan of Melanie's I, End of Dairy. Yeah, <laughs> I uh, I read your book five years ago, and it then influenced my senior thesis in college. Oh, so 
That's great. Yeah, uh, love dairy over here. <laughs> <laughs> yes, so it was Taylor Taylor um, suggestion to cover this topic, and I'm really excited that we are doing it today. Um, and I have to say, so when I when I was reading this book, the title itself um, caused a few raised eyebrows, and it was definitely a conversation starter because uh, people would just look at the book and at first glance would assume that the title "Nature's Perfect Food" was the statement you were trying to make. Um, but one of the things you are very uh, you know you clarify very early on is that you're not speaking to whether or not milk is healthy but you're more interested in how it became such an important part of Americans' diet. Well, that's the, that's the question I was um, asking in the book, is why did Americans consider milk a perfect food for so very long? Probably there's a number of reasons for that. Um, one uh, was that people were thinking about it as, as nutritionally perfect, as, as almost like uh, drinking a liquid multivitamin with protein <laughs> and fat. Uh, and um, and the idea was that this kind of um, that that milk was a complete food that it had all almost all of the nutrition that uh, because infants could live on milk alone then the idea was that mammals uh, all mammals could could basically um, live on this substance. Right, right. So, okay, so let's let's go back and just sort of situate like what time period are we talking about? You know, when this idea started to take hold. Um, as I, I talk about in the book, I go back to uh, the early 19th century uh, when uh, reformers were concerned about a couple of different things. One was that there was a huge amount of infant mortality in the cities. And, you know, this is way before the germ, you know, the theory of germs or germs were discovered. People were starting to realize that there was a relationship between infants drinking milk, you know, or, or young uh, uh, children drinking milk from these um, what they called swill dairies, hmm. and so reform and milk and, and milk drinking have been going to going together for various reasons for since the beginning of the country. Yeah, and so one of uh, your main arguments in um, Nature's Perfect Food is that the rise of our industrial milk shed has a lot to do with religious and political ideologies, which you're beginning to mention, um, but not just capitalist interests. Can you situate for us why milk is different in this regard to, let's say, corn or um, commonly grown grains that are often associated with sort of the rise of the capital market? Milk uh, solved some problems for legislators, right, for politicians. For the rural politicians, what they really needed was for farmers to be able to make a living, to be able to maintain livelihoods, you know, as the 19th century progressed, the New York farmers were really getting out-competed by farmers to the West, and they needed to find an alternative. At the same time, in the cities, uh, particularly New York City, with a burgeoning immigrant population, um, a growing number of um, people who were having a hard time feed, being able to afford to feed their children, milk became a sort of solution to uh, you know, when they were thinking about it as a perfect food or as a complete food, they would also talk about it as a protective food. That is, that even if your diet was poor in other ways, um, this sort of liquid multivitamin would um, enable children to grow healthy. Mm -hmm. And so if you think about, um, you know, legislators sitting in Albany trying to figure out how to, how to meet the needs of their uh, constituents, one is saying what we really need is cheap 
a, a cheap form of nutrition, and the others are saying, well, we really need to support our farmers. And that really is basically the same thing that happened nationally with um, other cheap food policies. And so what, one, why did you focus on New York, and what was it about this region that um, sort of prompted sort of those legislators and those farmers to find a solution? Um, and were, was this happening in any other regions um, around a similar time? You know, if you want to look at the history of reform in America, you really have to start um, in the Northeast and in particular in those areas where people were looking at the rise of urbanization and saying that, you know, seeing the cities as um, centers of ill repute. Temperance reform, dairy, dietary reform, dairy reform, um, abolition all really pretty much went together. Um, all of those um, movements have generally tended to be tied together uh, in American reform history. Uh, one of the things, one of the justifications um, for the heavy promotion of milk drinking that you write about is that it is a, a natural, a quote, natural substance, and it's universal throughout time and space, Par- uh, partly because it's one of the first, it is the first food to sustain the human body and contains everything you need in the universe of nutrition, you know, during those early days or, or months. Um, but it seems that somewhere in our history, cow's milk became conflated with breast milk, right? So I'm wondering, yeah. you know, at what point did this idea first start to take root? Well, first of all, we have to remember also that, that replacing breast milk with cow's milk was a pretty bad idea. For the right, part. yeah. <laughs> Which, um, yeah. And, uh, you know, I go into, you know, it's a, a long, sort of a longer explanation, but I go into why American middle-class women, particularly in cities, uh, tended to choose cow's milk over breastfeeding. If it were good for uh, calves, it should be good for um, children as well. Huh. Which it turned. You know, you see that in advertisements on milk cartons even today, and some and some milk cartons. Right. You know that that cows are. You know, cows know how to feed their cows, and they know how to feed your kids too. Oh. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and the irony, of course, being that um, as as women started feeding, uh, do, doing more what you you call artificial feeding of right. of cow's milk and less breastfeeding, um, infant mortality rates, uh, there was a there was a drastic increase during that time. Uh, the infant mortality rate was probably um, you know as 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 strong, if not more, with the middle class because it was middle class women who were feeding, who were buying and feeding their children cow's milk. Um, you know, working class, um, poor women couldn't afford to buy milk. They they had to breastfeed. You know, it's it's when when middle class people find that their um, that there's a health crisis, they they have a tendency to um, to notice and get it publicly noticed. And one of the things you talk about in the beginning of the book is that most people, in fact, are not biologically. Um, able to digest fluid milk. Is that correct? Well, yes. Um, there's, uh, first of all, it's not possible to produce milk all year long mm-hmm. except mm-hmm. with an industrial milk system. Right. Um, and part of what I talk about in the, in the book is how that system developed that enabled cities to get a, you know, a flow of milk all year long because cows you know, cows are, are animals that tend to 
um, you know, give birth in the spring, and um, they tend to then lactate in the spring, and in the winter they tend to not lactate. So you said there were there are two populations, two subpopulations that were conditioned throughout history to drinking milk. Can you tell us what those were? The groups that tend to be they have least number of lactose intolerant individuals tend to be Northern Europeans mm-hmm. and the Maasai in Africa, and these are two different ways of adapting to uh, local uh, uh, agroecologies in those areas. You know, the Maasai are in, in areas that are have very low water in between. You know, they, they trans, with transhumanists, you go from waterhole to waterhole. And the cows yeah. basically function as um, containers of fluid. Um, that, that, uh, That's one uh, way to look at They're basically, you know, they're, they're, they're your food, but they're also kind of your water bottle. Yeah. Um, and yeah, at least during the sort of traditional Maasai, in traditional Maasai culture. This topic is fascinating, but we're going to take a really quick commercial break. And when we come back, I want to talk a little bit more about pasteurization and the rise of the, um, you know, how milk kind of ushered in this, uh, this era of the industrialized food system. So stay Great. tuned for more. And we're back on Eating Matters, where today we're speaking with Melanie Dupuis about the rise of popularity of milk in America. Melanie, um, at what point in our history did we decide to pasteurize milk products, and what were the effects of pasteurization on the industry? So uh, those who do the history of the rise of industrial organization um, talk about the earliest uh, industrial organizations. They often bring up Borden's. Uh, you know, in order to, as as Borden, farmers, the milk company? Yes. But Borden, okay, sorry. Yeah. Right. So, um, as, you know, as reformers began to convince people that um, milk was definitely a problem and needed to be created in a more sanitary way, um, that, and, and, and here's, you know, here was the first part is that, you know, reformers said, bring milk in from the country, our country milk is pure and everything will be fine. But, of course, uh, those uh, those um, folks out there who, you know, think about uh, supply chains nowadays know that the further your supply chain is away from um, the eater, the more likely <laughs> are there are middlemen in there sort of uh, messing things around. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and and that tended to be true for that sort of early country milk system, mm-hmm. is that uh, as the milk went down, went down into the city on the trains, um, a lot of water and other things would get added. And um, and so it really required a system with a lot of inspection, a lot of rules, a lot of rules on the farm for how you, you know, sort of uh, sanitation in the barns and so on. So the government brought, brought in those kinds of rules um, and the um, and the the, um, what, what, when did the first uh, pasteurization? The large scale. I'm sorry. That's sort of uh, the industrial. Um, you know, folks like Borden were able to sort of put together the kinds of companies that could sort of follow the milk all the way from the barn into the city and uh, keep it uh, in. And, and so that kind of organization of uh, it would t- tended to transform the farm because the farm had to be. Um, able to produce milk all year long. Um, it had to be, you know, those tended to be larger scale farms. They tended to, so there was industrialization going on basically in terms of new technologies mm-hmm. and so on 
in on the farm, but then there were new technologies to bring milk to the city and and then pasteurization to um, to also keep it sanitary. And it was really only the large companies also that could afford to pasteurize right. at the beginning. It was a you know a fairly expensive uh, process. So, and w- um, didn't Borden start doing that before they legally had to before it was a regulation? Yes. Yes, they did, and um, but I mean, you know, not very long before, um, but uh, so they uh, were able to. They were, it was actually people were actually suspicious of it because they thought that pasteurization was actually just taking bad milk and trying to cover it up. <laughs> um, but uh, and there was a lot of arguments about whether or not pasteurization uh, should should be imposed by the government. You know, required. Very much like the kinds of food safety arguments that we've been having in the last couple of years about, you know, what kind of food safety regulations should we impose and will they be, will they sort of drive smaller farmers out of the business and, um, you know, re- require kind of, a, you know, sort of make our current industrial food system even more industrialized. Um, and that's... Uh, that's certainly something that you know people have been talking about ever since the pasteurization debate. So pasteurization kind of, in a way, forced industrialization of this product? Well, it, it was, you know, I think that you can't really say it's one thing. I think it was pasteurization. I think that it was scaling up. I think it was technology, other technologies. It was transport. It was regulation. Um, it was the... Uh, and, you know, but it was all of the things that uh, seem so familiar today in terms of when what we think about in terms of the rise of the industrial food system of, of any other industrial commodity. But it really happened in milk first. Um, and, um, and the kind of large-scale sort of uh, industrial processing company um, necessary to make that sort of system work, but, you know, Bart Borden sort of represents the, one of the first of those. How did... How did the way um, Americans view the farmer change with the rise of fluid milk drinking? And what were some of the um, repercussions of of this perception? Uh, also, I'm wondering if you think it's indicative of how how we view farmers in today's society and the role the role of rural America. I just threw four questions at you. <laughs> let me let me know if you want me to break that down. Well, you know, I mean, uh, you know, reformers thought of this of the country as as the natural and the city as the degraded, and thought that if we just bring the country into the city, everything will be fine. Right. Um, and then, with the you know, when, just about the time that people started arguing um, about uh, whether or not there should be pasteurization, uh, people also started arguing that um, some. Uh, dairy farmers were better than others, and that we needed to get the bad dairy farmers out. And um, and and those, you know, when you if you look at the pictures, of, and they, they have pictures, these were the sort of the, the early nutritionists, the early food safety experts in um, in the state started to, you know, because it's sort of a rising food group of food professionals, and they they sort of showed that, that you know they would show this um, guy. Uh, milking a cow in a kind of white, uh, you know, quite kind of a, one of those white sort of science, science gowns with a little white hat, um, which, you know, uh, believe me, it does, does not happen even today. Um, 
but but it was sort of to represent, you know, and then they would show these other farmers and sort of show, look, oh, look at how bad their practices are, hmm. with the idea that, you know, that there were these bad farmers that we, and, and usually those farmers tended to be the smaller farmers. Um, and um, so there were, you know, that's the idea that we, and, and that regulations, therefore, would, would sort of take the bad farmers out and leave us with a good good actors uh, and and um and so that was that's sort of been the the you know even today when you look at the food safety regulations you hear people say exactly the same thing right right and the the last thing we really want to ask you about is uh in your book you characterize the organic dairy customer and the rise of nimby which is not in my body um but you say that these customers don't seem to really uh, view themselves as part of a larger political movement towards clean food. What they might just purchase organic mi- organic dairy, organic milk, um, but that's it. Um, can you elaborate on why you think this is and if you think anything has changed? Um, yeah, well, you know, this, this, bill, this book came out uh, quite a while ago. Yeah. We're we're cutting edge as always. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I just made a joke about how we're always on the forefront of, you know, the food literary world. <laughs> yeah, it, it was one of the one of the early food books. There there are lots more now. In fact, right. many many more milk books now. Um, but uh, yours is the best. Uh, the, um, <laughs> you know, at the time that was a, the, during the time, and I had, I had spent a bunch of time sort of looking at the rise of Horizon Milk. Um, and if you look at how Horizon Milk sort of advertises itself, it's really about, you know, sort of mothers taking good care of their children and, um, you know, feeding them something that's safe. And then that's mm-hmm. been, you know, that's been a way of selling selling milk and a lot of other foods for a very long time. Right. You know, as opposed to, say, you know, if you look at, you know, it's, it's really, I mean, it's one of the things I've, I still collect milk cartons. I have a, 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 an attic full of milk cartons that drives my family crazy. Um, but if you look at sort of the different ways in which people have advertised milk, you know, there are those who advertise it in terms of the farmer. You know, this is the farmer. He's mm-hmm. the, he or she is the steward. Um, there's often sort of children in those pictures. You know, they are, if you look at the organic valley. Organic valley does um, that, yeah. Cart, cartons, right? As opposed to um, the, the, the sort of uh, uh, kind of the industrial milk is usually just a glass of milk and saying, this is healthy and, and if you drink it, <laughs> right. you know, it's good and white and pure. Mm-hmm. And um, and then, you know, Horizon had this great sort of, you know, uh, that, uh, you know advertisement on the milk carton, which was like, you know, uh, cows are mothers too, and um, it was huh. appealing to motherhood and parenthood because they had looked at the data, and the data basically says that a lot that, that people were buying organic milk, uh, mostly parents for children. Yeah. Um, at the time, and now it is. Is there's, um, you know, there's a lot. You know, is there a lot more people? Are there a lot more people buying organic for the sake of the environment now well i hope so um but uh you know they but they've always shown like the marketing has always shown that there are two groups of people who buy organic and one is people who care about the environment and the other one is basically parents buying it for their children or people buying it for their own personal health 
Okay. All right. With that, Melanie, I think we're going to have to end it there. Um, can you just tell uh, our listeners really quickly where they can go to um, get a copy of this book, Nature's Perfect Food, and of your new book, Dangerous Digestion? Well, um, Nature's Perfect Food was uh, and Dangerous Digestion are both available on Amazon. Um, one was published, the first one was published by NYU Press, and the second one published by UC Press. They're both available um, and, online. And, and on online on Amazon. Awesome. Great. All right. Well, thank you Perfect. so much for you. for joining the show today. Thank you. You know what time it is. <laughs> um, yep. Okay. It's time for our segment on startups, where we feature an innovative and exciting new food company at the end of each episode. Today, I'm pleased to introduce Liz Vaknin and Shelley Golan, co-founders of Our Name is Farm, a digital media and event production company that works in support of sustainable food growers, producers, and consumers. Liz and Shelley, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having us. Hi. I'm really excited you're here. <laughs> okay, so tell me, tell, tell us about your company. What, um, what, are, what, what, what kind of work do you guys do? Uh, so Our Name is Farm is a digital media and event production company that works ex- exclusively with sustainable farmers, producers, and supporters of sustainable food systems. Uh, so we, uh, our signature product in the digital media side is mm-hmm. video, mm-hmm. and uh, we produce marketing video uh, content from like Instagram kind of videos to much longer, more documentary style pieces. Uh, and we also produce other digital media content, uh, websites, uh, anything that exists in the digital realm. And then for event production, uh, we do uh, collaborative brand activation, which is where we facilitate and run events that take advantage of multiple brands uh, in partnership together to maximize their exposure and also maximize um, the benefit to the consumer. What made you guys decide to get into this um, digital and events planning space? You know, what was the, yeah, when did you decide this and and what was the sort of original impetus? Right. So Our Name is Farm started as a blog about three years ago. And um, we essentially just started talking to farmers and started this video blog just kind of as a hobby to profile our interests and, and have some sort of body of work that Shelly and I could could show off. Um, she was working in production and I was working in fine dining. And um, it essentially transformed into a full-scale production company when we were approached by the Berkshire Tourism Bureau to start producing videos to boost their agritourism profile. And then mm-hmm. the kind of light switch went off and we were just like, okay, we could maybe do this full-time. So we slowly started going into more digital media and we kind of segmented into doing digital media and event production when we realized you couldn't have one without the other. They kind of really just inform each other. In today's day and age. Right. Yeah. And what is what is the overall kind of goal and mission of the company? Uh, so Our Name is Farm uh, has a very strong social component, um, mm-hmm. and that is to increase access to good, wholesome food. Um, and that is a part of... Uh, our business dealings, um, 
even as a for-profit company. Right. So we essentially have a set of skills. We take that set of skills to work with brands that pay us, and then we use that set of skills to also give back to our community. Uh, for example, last summer we did a video series for Grow NYC. This year we devoted a lot of our time recording, let's say, cooking classes at the Food and Finance High School, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. So we kind of use our same set of skills that we would you know, set aside for for-profit companies and then use our extra time to give back to the community. And work with nonprofits right. and, and educational. Correct. Mostly educational opportunities. Organizations. Yes. Um, what are your backgrounds? Did you guys both come out of the food industry? Liz, I'm going to... You were working in fine dining, so I think that's a yes. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, I went to culinary school. My background before that was in communications, and um, I started out in fine dining, kind of did my own thing for a while, and then started our name is Farm. And Shelly? Yeah, uh, I, uh, Liz and I met in college. Both of us went to college in Israel. Mm. And uh, yeah, kind of both of us were there for undergrad. (laughs) Um, Liz was studying communications, as she said, and I was studying organizational psychology. Oh, um, interesting. Yeah, which I'm not doing. Not that. doing. Yeah, not doing right that. Right. Not <laughs> you doing you that will now. once our name is farm grows and yeah, and maybe gets, we'll have you know. a clinical psychologist. No, we're not going to do that. <laughs> uh, but uh, so yeah, so uh, my background after college was uh, in fashion marketing, and then I worked uh, for Nickelodeon doing post production. So I came from the more digital production side of it, and Liz came from the more um, kind of event culinary hospitality. event yeah. hospitality side. And how was the company founded? I think we have a lot of people, a lot of listeners who always, you know, may have some ideas percolating and <laughs> right. like want to look to like early inspiration of people who have kind of gone before speaking them. Speaking about so yourself, Jenna? Maybe, maybe yeah. speaking about myself. I don't know. Our, quote, listeners. Right. So, I mean, the light bulb kind of went off when we started working with the Berkshire Tourism Bureau. But um, essentially, we kind of just jumped into it. An opportunity kind of landed at our feet. Um, it was a six-week pop-up that we had kind of been offered to do, and we just jumped right in. There was, like, no business plan. There was, like, you're just you like, have we, two weeks to set this up, do we it. We had, at that point, just come to the decision that we were going to incorporate. Got it. Like, mm-hmm. We finished this series, and we could do this full-time. Right. So, yeah, we'll incorporate. We'll do a business plan. We'll, like, come up with that. We'll get, we'll get our ducks in a row. Yeah, figure it out. Yeah. And then it was like, nope, we're going to just... Run a six-week cafe out of an art gallery. We're just going to jump right in, <laughs> full force, right. very New York. But we learned a lot. Um, I think that what was great about that experience is that we kind of learned what we were into doing, what we were not into doing, mm-hmm. and that helped us like kind of streamline our idea moving forward so that when we finished this project, we had time to sit down, incorporate, and get all of our ducks in a row, so to speak. Um, what, in your opinion, differentiates your company from other digital and event production companies? Uh, so I think that what makes Our Name is Farm special uh, is primarily the strength of our network and the breadth of our network. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, Because we started as a blog and kind of spent almost a full year, uh, almost a year and a half, purely doing this from our own uh, desire interest, and yeah. interest to come and record the stories of the farmers in our community, uh, our base was built upon a network of farmers and a lot of production companies and digital media companies primarily in the food scene don't have as strong a focus on that part of the food chain mm-hmm. so production, from, yeah. yeah in production so from yeah. the beginning uh, we had kind of a, an insight and an in um, to the food world that many of our peers didn't have Mm-hmm. Um, and that, I think, is one of our biggest strengths is our ability to uh, leverage our network 
uh, to our benefit, to our network's benefit. Right, mm-hmm. especially now um, when we do a lot more collaborative brand activation, it's generally really hard to get farmers to work together and kind of have that um, collaborative aspect. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's more and more in the forefront now, um, but definitely when we started doing this, you know, it was a lot harder and now we're finding it it's a little bit easier but it's still great to have access to that network of people who trust you and trust to represent your brand you know in the best light possible what is something happening in the food movement right now that that you guys are particularly excited uh excited about or that makes you feel optimistic about the future of food right so i kind of just touched on that a little bit actually we're most excited about the idea of collaborative workspaces mm-hmm. um when you talk about the food scene, you have, you know, like the more urban food scene, and then you have the like more like farm, like removed rural. food scene. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Rural. Um, in the food scene in, in urban places, I think it's translated more into food halls and stuff like that, um, which we love because you can, you know, as a consumer, you can go in and not have to choose kind of what you want to eat. You can just get a little bit of everything, and that's super exciting. What's a food hall that you guys are really supportive of? Um, I love the Vanderbilt food hall. I think it's really great that Urban Space finally got, like, a brick and mortar. Mm-hmm. I think that they do a really good job of curating their their suppliers and of course, you guys are located at Roberta, so you would, you would totally agree. Obviously, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, um, Even yeah, Chelsea Market has yeah, grown okay. so much in the number of... Yeah. Uh, Definitely. It's become more of a food hall than a shopping. Definitely. Right, right. Um, but I think it's in terms of like modern collaborative spaces, like mm-hmm. Vanderbilt is a really good replica- Example. representative yeah. of that. Yep. Um, in the more farming scene, I think that the collaborative aspect is translated into um, sharing equipment, you mm-hmm. know, creating food hubs so that all the farmers don't have to drive down their stuff let's say from the Catskills to the seat to the city they could just have one drop-off space that one guy does a run once a week and it saves money it saves time and um again the streamlines yeah Yeah. and the brand exposure you know when you have a lot of brands working together your network is just larger so I think that all in all it's it's good and we're happy because you can't fix you can't fix this like broken, you know, food system with one person. So the fact that mm-hmm. people are all jumping on board and realizing that it has to be done with a group effort is really monumental, I think. Awesome. Any advice for um, those just starting out in the food, in either the food industry and or the food entrepreneurial space? Uh, yeah. For our listeners. Don't, sure. Don't our... work in fine dining. No, just kidding. <laughs> don't <laughs> Personal experience. Um... <laughs> Yeah, I think that uh, the biggest um, advice that uh, we could give is uh, sometimes you just have to do it. Mm-hmm. And uh, even as many like listicles of uh, that you could read of have your business plan and have mm-hmm. this and and you know make a lot of uh, research and that's all very important. But at a at a certain point, you got to hustle. You, you got to hustle do. and yeah. you just got to do it and. and you don't know until you try. We got partnerships with companies that we didn't dream of getting mm-hmm. because we just sent an email or cold called. And no one told us we could do that, and no one told us we couldn't. And so we did it. All right. I think that's great. Um, so before we wrap up, you guys have a big event coming up yeah. this Friday. Yeah. Can you We're, tell us more about that? Sure. We're going to be popping up at Union Square Green Market on Friday between 4 and 9 p.m. on the north side of the plaza. It's going to be part of Summer Fridays. Union Square 
uh, has been around now for 40 years. So Grow NYC celebrating 40 years at Union Square. Mm-hmm. We're going to have an awesome menu with um, that we've collaborated on with chefs Tara Glick and Chris Lim, formerly of American Cut Steakhouse. Mm-hmm. And they're opening up their new project, Butcher & Baker, very soon, I think, in Brooklyn. So, cool. so you're working with them to do this pop-up. Right. Yeah. And we're sourcing a lot. We're sourcing um, most of the ingredients from the Union Square Green Market. And there's going to be a bunch of other chefs there from restaurants that source from Union Square Green Market on a daily basis to curate their restaurant menus. Um, and it's super exciting because Our Name is Farm was the only non-restaurant invited to ah, participate. So awesome. I think that's a testament to how involved To your culinary skills? No. <laughs> no that also. <laughs> More just, you know, how much we love the green market and how we've supported it and how I think it's so integral into our company story. I mean, we started at the green market. So for us to give back to that community at any chance that we get, you know, we're just really happy to do yeah. that. And that's at Union Square on this Friday, this the, Friday 15th, the 15th. Yep. At what time? 9 p.m. 4 to 9. We're serving PBLTs. It's a pork Ooh. butt BLT. On a, a buttermilk biscuit. biscuit. Oh, my God. Yeah. Roasted wow. stone it's fruit iced tea. And free on Friday. Enough said. I'm free on Friday. <laughs> I mean, I was already going to go, but I think we got Taylor is going to come with us. Awesome. From Bo- You're going to come back from Boston. Yeah, there we go. Just to go. Okay. We'll save you okay. a biscuit. All right, great. Okay, um, and then I think I think that's all we've got. T- yes, that is all we have time for today. Um, and we're going to have to wrap it up. I want to thank my guests, Shelly and Liz, so much for coming into the studio today. Thanks for having For more us. information on on um, their company, go to OurNameIsFarm.com and be sure to look for their booth at the Green Market this yeah, Friday. Bye. Thanks, guys. Okay, thank you to all of our guests today and to our sponsors for your generous support. Our show is produced uh, with help from Taylor Lenzette, uh, who also joined me in the studio today. And the show music is by Tim Archer. Thank you to our engineers, David Tedashore and Pierre Benami. Uh, all episodes of Eating Matters are available on Heritage Radio Network website or as a podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe. Like, share, follow, and post to us on Facebook, and be sure to find us on Twitter at eMattersHRN. I'm Jenna Liute, and thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.